This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hello and welcome to the House of Cards edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on the show this week, we are going to revisit that card trick that stumped a lot of our listeners a few weeks back. And we have recruited the best man in the world to help talk about it. More on that in a minute. We are also going to talk about Amazon's purchase of Twitch for a billion dollars or so, and Snapchat's $10 billion valuation so many billions. We'll try and explain where all of those billions are coming from. And finally, we'll chat about Fantex, which is a company that lets you buy, quote, linked to the income of a pro-athlete brand. What is exactly linked to the income of a pro-athlete brand? It's some kind of security. I'm not a big fan of this. We'll talk about that later. But before we get into the meat of the show, let me first introduce our very special guest, Emmanuel Derman. Now, I actually quoted you, Emmanuel, a couple of weeks ago on this show when I was talking about this card trick. But I think I kind of got you a little bit confused with Paul Wilmot. So if you could give us a quick breakdown of like who you are and who Paul Wilmot is. Okay, um, I'm happy to be here. Um, Paul, Paul and I, uh, Paul is a quant and I'm a quant. I think we were both fairly well known. I started out a bit before him, but we first met in 1990. He runs a website called wilmot.com. Um, I'm, uh, and I'm originally South African. I was originally a particle physicist as a professional and at some point, I moved um, into finance, and I worked at Goldman Sachs for about 20 years. And now I teach at Columbia. I run a financial engineering program. And I wrote a book called My Life as a Quant and Models Behaving Badly, the latter about the financial crisis. Models Behaving Badly, by the way, is – well, both books are, are wonderful books. Um, and we also, as ever, have with us Kathy O'Neill, the head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University, also kind of a – colleague of our ma- of manuals absolutely in fact Emmanuel came and spoke to my students earlier this summer and both of you have appeared on the seminar that i have at columbia so this it's, is very incestuous it's a highly incestuous edition of slate money here and then the odd man out who has never been to Emmanuel Derman seminar at columbia is jordan weissman slate's money box columnist yeah, i'm adding a little bit of diversity to okay. the <laughs> but we are going to go straight into this card trick now i i explained it one way two weeks ago but i've completely forgotten how i explained it so kathy is going to give us the original canonical paul wilmot version of this card trick and explain what's going on here okay 
You are in the audience at a small, intimate theater watching a magic show. The magician hands a pack of cards to a random member of the audience, asks him to check that it's an ordinary pack, and would he please give it a shuffle? The magician turns to another member of the audience and asks her to name a card at random. Ace of hearts, she says. The magician covers his eyes, reaches out to the pack of cards, and after some fumbling around, he pulls out a card. The question to you is, what is the probability of the card being the ace of hearts? So... We, we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, and we got some letters. Um, one of them told us that after three over two log to the base two brackets <laughs> N shuffles, where N is the number of cards, it would be completely reasonable to assume that the cards are randomly distributed and that the probability of any given card being the ace of hearts is one in 52, and that therefore, for a deck of 52 cards, three over... Two log to the base two of fifty-two is roughly eight point five five. So as long as there were nine shuffles, one in fifty-two <laughs> would be the right answer. This is kind of idiot savant stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and kind of my favorite one was the one which said this: skipping the external and then the word dressing in square quotes. There's po- problem stipulated drawing a single card twice with replacement from an ordinary bridge deck and blah 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 and. And then goes on to say, unless he is implying that the magician slash poser of this problem is up to some trickery in the way that he manipulates the cards, <laughs> I would suggest that indeed one in 52 is the correct answer. My explanation follows. And then a long explanation of why. Anyway, Emmanuel, talk to us a little bit about this, this card trick. Uh, I read I read what Paul wrote that you sent me. And I think he's trying to make a fairly simple point, And that is that people get, and I agree with him, that people get carried away too much by thinking in the abstract and and um, and very conventionally about mathematics and not paying attention to the real world and so um, they start calculating actually that the probability is one in 52 if you really believe it's a random thing but Paul's Paul's point is that there's a lot else going on in the world besides a random draw over here the magician has a strategy the magician's trying to achieve some effect and so you're naive if you think it's one over 52 uh, l- let me just as somebody who got totally you know, trapped by this puzzle myself. Because if you guys remember, <laughs> yeah. those of you who listened to this t- show two weeks ago, um, Jordan immediately laughed, and I was like, and then I felt a little bad for. Him. <laughs> I felt bad for. Him. I laughed, and then you gave me a look, and I was like, did I miss something? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I'm going to go with what Emmanuel said. Like, there's basically when you're trained in mathematics, which I am, since I have a PhD in mathematics, you have certain triggers. And like you get triggered by this concept of you have a like a mathematical question that has a well-defined answer, and you like you live in that little finite world, and that finite world had like a random card draw, and as soon as you live in that world, you're like one over fifty-two because it's random. But then you're like, actually, the what I my thought process was I've, after that I said, well, actually, it's a magician, so it's closer to one, but it's not actually equal to one because no magician is perfect. And plus, I wasn't exactly sure what the goal of this magic trick was, and <laughs> so I literally sat there thinking, I don't have enough information to answer this question. But if you were forcing me to answer it with a specific number, I'd have to say one over fifty-two. Whereas, you know, really, whereas I, my, my take on this is that you're absolutely right. We don't have enough information to answer the question. In fact, there is no sort of ontologically perfect, correct answer to this question. But there is 
an ontologically perfect incorrect answer, which is one in fifty-two. Whatever the answer is, you know that it's not one in fifty-two. That this card being picked out by the magician is not completely random. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's a topic that you should use the word probability for. Exactly. I mean, there's not a random series of events happening, and this is one of them in a frequentist sense. This guy's—it's uh, actually deterministic. It's not probabilistic at all. <laughs> Well, I mean, and, and that brings up like the topic that I know is near and dear to Emmanuel's heart, which is like this idea that you have, you have language, and it goes back to this trigger. Like you have language which is mathematical and precise, and actually has a bunch of assumptions around it that you don't think about too often. And then when you place it into the real world, you you get people convinced that what you're saying is accurate and true and objective. Yeah, I was gonna. I wanted to ask Emmanuel. Um, I'm curious where you observe kind of real-world versions of this this fallacy happening, or people falling into this sort of math, the, the magician's trap. Well, what, one one great example yeah. is magic tricks. Actually, okay. one of the reasons why these magic tricks work as magic tricks is because when you do things like shuffling cards, you place the audience into that probabilistic mindset. The whole point of a shuffled pack of cards is that it is supposedly random and you get people thinking that it's random and then when something happens which is clearly non-random they're surprised and delighted and that's what magic is all about yeah that's a good point yeah paul and i uh, we've actually been on a campaign for years we wrote something in 2009 called the financial model as manifesto which was sort of a a bit of a spoof on on the communist manifesto but (laughs) it was about how financial modelers shouldn't take math too seriously and should understand the consequences of the, the sociological or society consequences of what they're doing. And both Paul and I have been on a campaign to say um, only use simple math and don't, don't take um, – people in finance have this tendency to, to, to sort of take the, 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 the syntax of mathematics and because something's quoted mathematically regarded as being incredibly precise and that works in physics – or in a lot of pure mathematical areas where math actually means something real, and then they transpose that language over to finance or to sociology or psychology and use the same mathematics, but it doesn't have the same precision at all. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote an article about something called the Gaussian copula function oh, yeah, back in yeah. 2009. Famous and article. It was, it was the, uh, the headline of the story was the formula that destroyed Wall Street, yeah. which may, may have been a tiny bit of hyperbole. Oh, but by internet standards. By internet standards. Come on, that's but, pre-BI era. So. <laughs> but but the, the whole point of the article was that you had a whole bunch of quants who were plugging, you know, a short range of historical CDS data into a model and coming and pricing bonds as, you know, using the model to price securities even though this was a really bad way of pricing securities and it wound up having disastrous consequences. Um, one of you, another one of your co-authors, um, to answer your question, Jordan, yeah. another one of Emmanuel's co-authors is Nassim Taleb. <coughs> and, uh, and only, only one joint paper together, which read like two separate papers shuffled together. <laughs> That but, got so defensive so fast. But, but, Nassim, but Nassim has a... Uh, has, um, Many good points, actually, in, in amidst some of the other stuff. And he tried to answer your question, Jordan. He's like, where, you know, where, do, where can you use mathematics in the real world to help you understand the real world? And his answer is in a casino, basically. There's a couple of highly artificial 
circumstances, like, for instance, a roulette table, where you genuinely can think that what's going on is random. But 99% of the time in the world, it's actually very, very dangerous to use this kind of modeling. Yeah, Nassim actually once pointed out to me, along the lines of what you're saying, a paper by the late um, statistician from Berkeley. I think his name is David or Daniel Friedman. And it's called something like, what is the probability of a, of a 6.2 Richter scale earthquake in the Bay Area over the next 10 years? And the guy teases apart the whole notion of probability and shows that it's not statistical at all. They're models of plate tectonics and, um, and lava flow. And there's actually nothing statistical about it at all. But people quote the answer as a probability. But it's, he's a statistician. He points out it's an inappropriate use of the word. And I think that's true of, I mean, Paul's trying to trick everybody, but right. that's true in this case, too. So, so the actual answer to the question is, if you're asking, you know, what is the probability of the it card being the It all depends on what you mean by probability. Well, no, the, 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 answer is, the answer is, there isn't a probability. Yes. This, is not a, this is not a situation where the concept of probability actually yeah, applies. Yeah, I think that's the right answer, actually. Or if you wanted to apply, you have to know more information. Yeah, I, I think that's really – I've lately um, kind of thinking about a similar issue when it comes to the way we talk about people, like essentially wealth or something happening to your you, – or wealth or kind of things happen well, – milestones in your life, things like probability of getting divorced. And this seems like a um, an issue that kind of journalists who deal with social issues a lot are just beginning to wrap their heads around. The idea that these kind of statistics are almost essentially fake numbers um, is just filtering down into our consciousness in a lot of ways. It's basically because we're not quite good enough at math to have realized it yet <laughs> and these numbers didn't have much of a basis that we're start that that's beginning to kind of dawn upon, I think, a lot of writers. We're oh, going to come good. back to the divorce thing yeah, yeah. Yeah. later in the episode. And by the way, I wanted to plug Emmanuel and Paul's Hippocratic Oath for Modelers, which I I show to everyone I can. That's, I think that's part of your manifesto. Yeah, yeah. It ends with a hippo, sort of Hippocratic oath. We didn't use those words, but yeah. First do no harm. Uh, yeah, it goes on a bit. It but goes yeah. on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's short. It's, um, on, it's on the internet. Go, go, yeah, and, it's, go and... It's on Wikipedia, actually. And, and look it up. We will leave probability for a minute. We will probably come back to it at some point. But we're going to move on to the second section, which is... I'm, I'm feeling... Twitchy. Twitchy. Itchy, twitchy. Uh, yeah, no, no probability here. Uh, Amazon is uh, buying a company known as Twitch for around a billion dollars, $970 million. Um, and Twitch, what is Twitch? Twitch is a website where people go to watch other people play video games for the most part. Now, to some of you out there, this might sound like the epitome of boredom, something that you'd get trapped doing at your buddy's house or maybe your, your 14-year-old kid's playing. But there are, 500, uh, there are 55 million unique users for this site uh, worldwide. Uh, Jeff Bezos referred to it as a global phenomenon, and he was not stretching the truth there. It's, uh, it is something uh, – it's a thing. And it's a fascinating deal that I think, uh, you know, at first there was a little bit of why would anybody use this platform? That was sort of the first round of questions that we heard. But as slow or pretty quickly, people are, I think, seeing the, the thinking, seeing the kind of genius behind this. And I just want to throw in, because I am the mother of three sons, that I actually had to intervene. My husband and I intervened with our five-year-old because he was watching too many other people playing Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> on, on YouTube, there was this guy named Gappy who who just, he must spend 12 hours a day making videos with really annoying sound effects that he makes with his, with his mouth. 
um, watching Minecraft, and it just got my son so excited that we had to have him stop watching it. And then my older son, um, I'm not going to name the name because he will be mad, um, once got addicted to watching someone play a video game that not only did he not have, but could never have because it was like a PC video game and we don't have PCs at home. So I'm just saying this is a very real thing for especially young men and maybe young women. I don't know the demographics. Well, you know, I think there are a few things to keep in mind. First off, video games in general are... Um I mean, it's it's a bigger industry than Hollywood. That's like the, that's the talking point you hear all the time. But I mean, it's bigger than the movies. It's a massive amount of money being thrown at these things. It's it's a big business, and I, I spent a little time watching Twitch. I have been watching it, and it's it's useful to think of it less as just a place people go to watch other people play games than sort of the beginnings of an internet video game network. In a way, that that's one potential interpretation. You know, you can go and watch you know video game tournaments with almost soccer style commentary or maybe WWE style commentary. But then also, there's also a great quote I saw from a, a Arizona State University professor Dan Gilmore, who um, he he tweeted this out, and I thought it was it was pretty much summed up a, a lot of the way we have to think about these tech deals, which was if you think Amazon bought Twitch uh, solely for its video game play, you probably also thought it was only going to be a bookstore, which is you have a site where pe- tons of people are watching other people streaming, doing an activity in lo- uh, real time. It probably has a lot of applications. This is, this is important. Twitch is one of the top two or three live streaming websites in the world. Um, I'm not entirely clear why it's important to watch video games being played live rather than, you know, as, you, as your kids do in a sort of recorded I think they, they're actually interactive. They're interactive. But there is you a lot of interaction going yeah. on. And, um, and what's actually fascinating to me about Twitch is that it's one of the very few video websites which has a almost perfect 50-50 balance between advertising and subscription revenues. Um, it, its revenues, I think I'm right about it, this, is roughly 72 million in total, of which roughly 36 million is subscriptions. And the subscription is a community based thing. You don't subscribe to Twitch, Twitch is all free. What you do is if you follow a particular gamer who puts a huge amount of time and effort into creating certain videos and certain, and, and certain channels, then you can pay $5 a month to that gamer. A little bit like a, twi- a tip jar to just kind of support that person in what they're doing because you really love this content. And I think that sense of community and loyalty is just incredibly valuable. And it's a great example of how the Internet has created new forms of, of people being able to support the production of incredibly compelling content, which people watch for hours and hours of every day. Emmanuel, have you um, spent any time watching video games online? Or even mm. playing video games? Uh, no, I go back to, to playing uh, Asteroids and Pac-Man. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> which, where which I Which you stop. can find on Twitch. They, are, yeah, Twitch. Really? they are there. You can watch the best Asteroids and Pac-Man players in the world. I remember being a postdoc at Stanford in like the late 70s and somebody had Asteroids. Some, some Stanford computer science people had programmed Asteroids on a big machine in the studio union and it was quite fantastic but, um, <laughs> but that's kind of where I faded but wait, out. Did people watch each other play? When, yeah, yeah, you watched other people play yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. So this and, is, and you played and you could actually link up two machines together and play against people. It was very sophisticated although the graphics weren't. So now I'm, I'm going to finish off this discussion by asking Jordan a slightly weird question which is oh. if, if you have <laughs> 10 Twitches put together because we all agree that Twitch is a major global phenomenon with impressive revenues and, and has really tapped into a global community. If you put 10 Twitches together, you get the valuation of Snapchat. Yes. 
Can you explain that one to me? What, Ooh, what I can't. I can't. Can, I, can, can I do it? The be- answer is one in 52. <laughs> <laughs> Snapchat no. is, is 10 billion. Is that it, what it uh, is? Kleiner Perkins yeah. just, inve- just invested $20 million in Snapchat at a valuation Whoa. of 10 billion. Kathy? Well, here's the thing. I have millennial friends. Be, besides Jordan, just, I was about to say, you have, listeners at home, Kathy turned, our stranger <laughs> neck looked at me, and it was just like, aside from you. <laughs> I mean, I love Jordan too, but um, here's the thing: like everyone thinks Snapchat is you send dirty pictures, and I thought that too. So I would always, yeah. when someone said, "Oh, I just Snapchatted," I just Snapchatted. I was like, "Well, I didn't see you remove any clothing. What happened?" You know, <laughs> and and it really learning the answer to that question has really made me understand millennials. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, Jordan, okay? But here's the thing. The, the annoying thing for an old person like myself about millennials is, is because I'm friends with quite a few of them, you'll say, hey, you want to go out? Um, they'll actually email me saying, I miss you, let's hang out. And I'll say, how about next Thursday? And they'll say, yeah, maybe. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, yes or no? I have three kids. You know, I don't have time to, like, c- get canceled on on a Thursday afternoon. So yes or no? And they're like, yeah, maybe, maybe, probably, you know? And that kind of reluctance to make plans really annoys me. But what I realize, and this is through Snapchat, is that it, it is combined with an understanding with other people who are millennials that you also do, are reluctant to force other people to make decisions. So going back to the question of why did you Snapchat without... Um, showing naked pictures of yourself. The answer was, oh, I just wanted him to know something and invite him, but he doesn't have to come. And because it's Snapchat, it's not, he just saw it. And if he doesn't want to come join us, then he doesn't have to because it's just Snapchat. Yeah, it's like a lower level. It's these sort of rank levels of formality and communication. And I think Snapchat is ranked somewhere below text messaging and formality. It's sort of like just a, hey, it's all, and then below Snapchat's yo. It's just, it's like literally so evanescent yeah. that there's like no responsibility so, attached to it. And people like that. So I, I want to say as an, I think 80s babies had, took a little bit more time to kind of get their heads wrapped around Snapchat than even the 90s babies. Like, there's, a, there's even a little bit of a millennial divide here. I mean, the, um, the CEO is 24 years old, to give you a sense of uh, he's kind of on that cusp. But um, the, you know, when I first saw it, I also thought it was essentially for sending dirty pictures. I couldn't think of anything. It was like a sex staff. That was the only thing I could uh, initially picture. But, yeah, I do think that there there. It kind of goes to show you that they're just throwing stuff against the wall and trying different forms of communication. Sometimes something does blow up, um, you know. And now they're experimenting with advertising. They're moving toward, you know, they're well, they they have the, or they're going te- to technically. Technically, they are still. I mean, this is this is the thing which jumped out at me. Yeah. And these valuations, you can put too much stock in them. They they all come with these wonderful things called liquidity preferences, which we've talked about yeah. in the past. And so you can't really take the valuations at face value. But still, for what it's worth, $10 billion is, as Dan Primack pointed out, um, of Fortune.com, the single highest valuation the world has ever seen for this wonderful thing which has come back into the world, which we thought we might have seen the end of after the dot-com bust, which is pre-revenue companies. Yes. This is the most valuable pre-revenue company of all time. But, are, are the ads evanescent too? Well, well there the, are no ads the, not yet. yet. They're, they're beginning to experiment okay. with how to figure out with how to do it. They're, they're moving towards advertising and they're kind of meeting with people about what they're going it's to like do. It's like flashing advertising. You know, I've got to say, I, I don't understand the people who pay, who pay for advertising in the sense I was looking at the Wall Street Journal this morning and there's an ad for Chopin uh, uh, Vodka. 
Yeah. And it's got a picture of a supposedly beautiful woman and it says be the guy who looks into her eyes rather than the guy who looks at your who looks at your at your phone. And I cannot understand why Chopin Vodka is willing to pay New York Times advertising money for this pathetic ad. <laughs> well, actually, let me I mean, this ties in one the whole looking at the phone thing ties yeah. in wonderfully to the one reason why in terms of revenue Snapchat could be a monster. And it's this, that when you read a snap, you have to hold your thumb down on the phone. The minute you lift your thumb, it it goes away. So on the one hand, there's something wonderfully evanescent about it, and you can throw someone a picture which they know they're never going to see again. You, You don't need to worry about is it a good picture or anything like that. But from an advertising point of view, if you have like a, a 10-second snap, you have someone who's holding their thumb down and watching this video or whatever it is, and has you have all of their attention while that thing is being viewed. And it's very difficult for advertisers to get someone's undivided attention in that way. And so that's the reason why I think people are thinking that this could be a big, big thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is huge for advertisers. There's nothing else on the screen, which is a, uh, a big deal. And, and beyond that... You know, advertising in general is sort of moving more to, or advertisers are, are more and more um, interested in ma- in kind of the length of engagement, how long you engage with their stuff on on a website. If you when you see that, you know, um, if you you know they're interested in seeing if you click past that YouTube video that or that that ad they have at the beginning of the YouTube video, they want to know how long someone linger like their you know mouse or their scroller lingered on a, a banner ad or whatnot. Um, it's not just about the possibility that someone's eyeballs passed over it fleetingly. So this is important. And, and if Snapchat can actually tell you exactly how long they're engaging, because that's exactly how long their thumb was on that for, that, that's a trove of information that's extremely, extremely valuable. So I'm going to move on now from surprisingly good ideas, which we all thought were stupid, to um, kind of the opposite, which is an idea which sounds on its face like it might be a good idea, but it's in fact unbelievably oh, stupid. Feel, you haven't been proven right yet. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it probability says it's stupid. <laughs> I, I think this is a terrible idea, so I want to know why it's also stupid. Okay, so there's this large number of companies out there who pop up every few months or so, all of which have the same idea at heart, which is basically buying equity in people. You know, you can lend a person money which is debt and so why can't you why can't a person issue equity instead like you know instead of paying back a thousand dollars why can't they just pay back one percent of their income for the next few years um and in principle you think well you know that's reasonable you can do debt you can do equity in practice it never works in practice David Bowie do that or somebody David Bowie did the Bowie bonds he securitized but that was debt that was not equity. He, um, you know, he, he had bonds with coupons, um, and we that was might his, want to explain for so a Bowie bond yeah. was um, a securitization of future revenues from David Bowie's back back catalog, and this is a standard financial thing that you know the financial markets have done for decades, which is securitizing future revenue streams and turning future revenue streams into upfront cash. Um, this it, is different, though. But, but what, what we're talking about, okay, let me start talking about this company called Fantex because this has um, got a bunch of rather credulous press in the New York Times this weekend. And what Fantex does is it gives athletes 
um, it seems to be football players in the first yeah. instance. Arian Foster, for instance, um, of the yeah, Houston Texans. A bunch of money up front in return for a certain percentage of their non-salary earnings going forwards. So not not how much they get paid by their football team, but all of the endorsement deals they have and that kind of stuff. And and what they then do is they then turn around and sell that income stream to investors. Um, and the idea is that you buy into these athletes in a kind of IPO and that if the athlete winds up doing well, then the value of that security will rise and you get to make money. And if the athlete winds up not doing well, then it falls and you lose money. And you can speculate on the fortunes of athletes in a market. That's the idea. People have tried this many times. In the very first issue of my former employer, Portfolio Magazine, there was a article by Michael Lewis about something called the Jock Exchange, which was trying to do just this. And this was back in uh, 2007. And of course, it never got anywhere. Um, so t- say why, why it's a bad idea. Okay. So there are three players in this, in this thing. There's the athlete, there's the investor, and then there's Fantex in the middle. The only person who this is good for, really, is Fantex in the middle. For the player, they get a, a lump sum of money which they don't really need because they're already earning millions of dollars a year from the clubs and which um, well let's put that to one side maybe it's okay for the player but my i have reasons to believe that it probably isn't from the investor point of view it's a disaster fantex in particular is an absolute disaster because you're not actually buying this income stream you don't actually have any rights to this income stream all you're buying is something called a tracking stock um which you know, if Fantex feels like it, they can give you some dividends. And if it doesn't feel like it, they don't have to. And you're buying an obligation of Fantex, which is a tiny little startup, which will probably fail. And if Fantex fails, you wind up getting nothing. So it's basically a credit risk problem. There's a massive counterparty risk problem here. So, but I mean, let me, let me ask a dumb question. Like, because uh, you're, you're right, Fan- that does sound really bad. But is there anything preventing from people from having an open exchange, like bet on the future of a given um, athlete's future? I mean, their their career that, that has nothing to do with the athlete itself. Right. But right. I was going to ask, how does Fantex intend to pay the dividends? Do they kind of replicate or have some formula for reproducing what the what the players' uh, uh, endorsements are? Where are they going to get they, that they money have, from? They have a contract with the player that the player has to give them some percent of their sal- non-salary earnings. And then, as for the dividends, Fantex kind of just says, well, if we feel like it, we will pay we will, you know, pay on some of that money to, to the shareholders. And, you know, we might set up a an exchange where the shareholders can trade these things, but, you know, that exchange will be owned by us and we'll take a cut out of every trade. Yeah, you know, there are lots of financial reasons to uh, be skeptical of an operation like this, but there are also some good sports reasons. I just want to say, like, the idea of, you know, betting on an athlete or even an athlete's non-salary uh, income, it just strikes me as kind of crazy. I mean, a running back, a football running back can easily have his career just cut short by a an injury on the field it's a you know something goes wrong you tear an acl you know you get stuck on the turf just something ha- it's 
there, there, there's almost no predictability to it. You know, oh, um, at the same time, there's so many off the field issues. You know, Ray Rice a few years ago around the Super Bowl time uh, is a Baltimore Ravens player. Maybe seemed like a great investment. Now, you know, I'm sure he had lots of endorsement deals. Now he, everyone's talking about how he, you know, knocked out his girlfriend in an elevator. He's not such a hot property anymore. And so there's almost no way to analyze it. I mean, it's just there's it's too so, unpredictable. Too I think unpredictable. There's so much. I, well, I, I think it's a good thing point. Massive. And, no, but know. that's that's a game. That's a single. You bet on a single game. You can bet on a season, and you're betting on a collection of players. In this, you're betting on the income. If you're betting on a single running back's income, it's just you're talking about a career. I mean. Would you bet on a single writer's income? So wait, when you say there's sports reasons why this is a bad idea, it sounds what you're saying is that there's financial reasons that there's a lot of downside risk. What's the sports reasons why? Oh, well, I'm just saying the nature of an athletic career, just like the fact that they can be cut short. Right. So, yeah. And, that, and, and, they I mean, can be cut short is, by so yeah, many unpredictable. But that's oh, true with individual stocks too. I mean yeah. somebody's going to come along and say you should just buy a portfolio of all of these Right. Things. And that's kind of like what, what – you know, teams do. Teams don't bet on individual players as much as possible. They yeah. have a roster, and that's why we have different kinds of risks going on in football yeah. versus individual yeah. sports. But this is also, I mean, when you're marketing this sort of thing, you're you're marketing to a certain kind of investor who's just like, I really want to invest in my favorite player. Can I we can we just bring it to the the one snarky thing I wanted to say though? Say, say something, which snarky. is like. Because I, I wanted to immediately generalize this to betting on individual people and their futures. So I was just like, and next thing you know, we're going to be able to bet on my next door neighbor and whether they're going to get a divorce, going back to the divorce thing. But then, of course, you can affect that if you, you know, for example, have an affair with your next door neighbor. So anyway, I'm just pointing out that there, this, there, you can just <laughs> keep going with this and it doesn't, it doesn't end well. So let's, let's try to But maybe avoid. life insurance sounded like that once upon a time, too. Well, when life the insurance Scottish started. people invented, invented well, when life, life insurance, insurance started, it you were buying insurance on other people's lives, yeah. and then you could, you know, kill them, and that, that was a bad deal. And so they actually made that illegal. Although there is a secondary market in insurance policies for people with fatal diseases, and we can talk about that in another episode of Slate Money, because this one has already gone on a bit longer than normal. Um, we do need to do a quick numbers round. How many people in this room have a number? I have a we number all today. have a number. That's excellent. Emmanuel, since you're the guest, you get to go first. Okay. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's start with Jordan, because okay. I think Jordan's number is going to be the best number. It's, I, well, actually, it might be. Um, my number is $11,300. Which is how much the Congressional Budget Office expects uh, the, US, the U.S. government to spend on each Medicare enrollee by 2019. And this might actually be the most important number in the federal budget right now because it has consistently been falling. Um, it was in 2010, the projection was about $12,700. This is for 2019. Yeah, for, uh, yeah, for 2019. For, for the same year. For the yeah, fixed yeah, exactly. year. For a fixed year. Um, the projection for overall spending, the projection for what we're going to be laying out for Medicare in 2020 has fallen um, by about 12%. The projection has fallen by about mm, uh, 12%. Um, this, I mean, the budget wars are in so many ways about our Medicare wars, our health spending wars. Um, and there are the, 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 this host of reasons uh, for why our spending it seems to be, or the rate of increase seems to be slowing um, from things having to do with Obamacare to just changes in the way the uh, medical industry works and the way doctors are treating patients. But it's good news. And it's something that we everyone... We are bending the cost curve. We are bending the cost curve. Exactly. Kathy. Well, my number this week is one-sixth. Um, one out of six New Jersey households 
um, renter households is being evicted. Now, they might not actually get evicted, but there's been a filing for their eviction. And that just that's part of a very large trend, a very recent trend of evictions um, for renters all the way across the country. And it's it's new. To, it was news to me. I knew it was bad, but I didn't know one out of six. Is that higher than normal? Yeah, that's much higher. It's spiked. It's, it's spiked, spiked everywhere. Is there a legal reason why? It, is it just economic, or is there is there some? It's it's a it's. I guess it's kind of like an after effect of the housing crisis foreclosures. People got kicked out. Then um, you know there's there's empty houses, but all these people were doubling up, and now they're all competing for renters rentals. Okay. So it's. Um, you know, we need more rentals and less empty is, foreclosed houses. Are, are the people who are behind on their rent the same people who, you know, six years ago would have been behind on their mortgage? Probably. I mean, I I haven't looked into the actual demographics, but um, it's definitely it's it's definitely a situation, a bad situation. That's a bad. It is a scary number. That my my number is ten percent, and this is actually. Um, Another good news number, I think, a, a little bit like um, Kathy, although it might not sound that way at first glance. Would you say like Kathy or unlike Kathy? Unlike Kathy, like Jordan. <laughs> um, the South African government, Emmanuel just got back from yeah, my numbers related to South that. Africa. Um, there, there was a little bit of a banking crisis in South Africa recently. A wee bit of banking crisis. And well, it, wasn't, it wasn't a major banking crisis. It was a minor banking crisis. And the South African government in resolving this bank, decided that they were going to what's known as haircut the creditors. And uh, and what that means is that if you lent money to this bank, if you're a creditor of this bank, you got 90% of your money back. There was a 10% haircut. And when European banks got into trouble, when US banks got into trouble, this almost never happened. It was understood that if you haircut creditors, this was going to be the end of the world. And indeed, what happened in South Africa is that a bunch of creditors to the you know to the bank were these money market funds and as a result of this haircut the money market funds wound up breaking the buck that you know you didn't actually have one dollar per share as as money market funds um, normally do and again this is something which the Americans were incredibly eager to avoid when it happened in the US and and the money and the, the reserve fund broke the buck in the wake of the Lehman Brothers disaster the treasury immediately ste- stepped in and said oh we're going to backstop all of the money market funds because we can't possibly let them break the buck it's going to be a disaster and one of the things which makes me very happy about what happened in South Africa is that the bank creditors got haircut and the money market funds broke the buck and the sun rose in the morning and the people who took risks wound up losing a bit of money, not a lot of money, and it worked the way it should work. Yeah, that's terrific. That is exciting. <laughs> and we didn't need to bail everyone out uh, because, you know, it, capital markets did their job. Yeah, the number of counterfactual arguments that people bring up against bailouts, in, in, in favor of bailouts, about how the end of the world was at hand is kind of amazing. So, Emmanuel, finish <clears throat> us off with your number. Uh, mine isn't a financial number. I, I, I did just come back from Cape Town, South Africa, where I was born. And when I left, everybody said the population was a half, uh, was a, half a million. And now when you look on Wolf from Alpha or you ask anybody over there how big the population is, they say three and a half million. And I don't quite understand how it got to be seven times bigger. It looks bigger, but it doesn't look seven times bigger. It doesn't look half the size of New York. 
So um, I don't know whether they're counting more people or counting a bigger area. So I actually I have a question. Are they now counting the townships as opposed to the uh, before? It's very likely. Or they're yeah. counting Greater Cape Town, but they don't say that. Actually. I, I I spent a little time as a reporter in in Cape Town actually, and I remember looking at essentially at a. I was in a house in the middle of Kailicha. Yeah. Um, and just turn it, which is, I mean, for listeners, it's just imagine an area. Uh, it, it, it's hard to, it's, I mean, I guess it's a shanty town. It is you, a shanty town. It's a shanty yeah. town, but. Uh, the corrugated uh, iron. Yeah, uh, but imagine, uh, it looks like it's almost like the size of the Bronx. I mean, it's enormous, the popul- population wise and just geographically, it's enormous. And just looking out over it and talking to people, and it was like, there wasn't a really good sense of how many people actually lived there. It's kind of a guess. So maybe that it, might be it part could of it. Be, I, uh, they may be, I'm sure they're counting that. Yeah, you see uh, electric wires, pirated electric wires running into, into the whole shanty town. Um, That's infrastructure. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think yeah, it, it, it's a boundary thing. But it is interesting the way that the definition of Cape Town or the population of Cape Town or both have kind of shifted without anyone making it clear what's been shifting. It would be interesting to see actually if I could go back historically and see when you know a time series of the population as recorded by something or other. Well, we, I, th- I think it also brings us should. back to the uh, the idea that sometimes number there's there's less to the numbers or more to the numbers that we we commonly cite than we realize. It's like a stock split yeah. when they started. <laughs> <laughs> On which note, we will we will wrap this one up. Another week, another show. Thanks so much for listening to Slate Money, and a very special extra thanks to Emmanuel for joining in today. If you liked the show, please subscribe in the iTunes store and leave us a review to help spread the word. You can find us by searching for Slate Money. And do please keep on writing to us with your comments and complaints and requests. Slate Money at Slate.com. We really do appreciate that. The producer for Slate Money is Tracy Samuelson, and today with special help from Andrea Salenzi. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman and Emmanuel Derman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. Slate Money.